0: Oh, okay, there we go. Um, So Jessica is is not going to read. Um, I refuse to read. She refuses to read. (laughs) I'm sorry. So we're we're just going to kind of get right into it. And for those of you who have not read the book, um, it is about... What I would describe as an office from hell um, that that uh, centers on a woman who is in her early 30s, right? She's past 30, but less than 35. Um, and she has found herself working for this foundation um, run by... How would would to best describe Leora Infinitus?
1: She is a reality television star and former sitcom actress who has a lot of money and doesn't know what to do with it.
0: So she has a foundation, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to read this quote from Emily Gould's review of Jessica's book in Book Forum. Um, From the opening pages of Breaking Case of Emergency, Jessica Winter demonstrates a knack for rendering the surreal, almost trippy quality of being trapped in a very bad meeting. The kind where time stops and everyone seems to be saying the opposite of what they mean. (laughs) Um, so, Jessica, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about this uh, feeling of being trapped in the very bad meeting that you capture so well.
1: Um, yeah, I, I hope I hope I don't capture it in a way that you know summons up traumatic memories for anyone who's been trapped in a very bad meeting. I liked how Emily capitalized the V, the B, yeah. and the M in the very bad meeting because it is a very specific genre of experience. Um, I mean, the the foundation in the book. Is called LIFT the Leora Infinitus Foundation um, L-I-F-T not L-Y-F-T and um, it it's kind of vaguely centered around women's empowerment or feminist empowerment or something. No one is really sure. Uh, not least Leora Infinitus. She isn't sure either. Um, and I think when an organization lacks a clear sense of a mission or a, lacks a clear sense of what any given person in that environment is supposed to be doing and what their goals are, um, you end up talking around things rather than like. N- no one in that situation tends to have. You know the the wherewithal to say what are we doing? Why are we here? What is this? And so instead, you have these you know just crazy filibuster conversations and meetings that don't go anywhere, and a lot of memos get written. Um, I have had proximity to these sorts of situations, Um, and um, that was what I was trying to capture. And I think my protagonist is someone who lacks a strong sense of self. I think that's her central battle. I mean, she has. Plenty of battles to fight, but I think that's that's the big one for her. And so centering her in a place that also lacks a sense of self felt to me like the worst possible thing I could do to her, and therefore a good premise for a book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of constantly wanting to shake Jen, um, and you know, have her like talk back to Karina, um, who is her boss, her direct boss, who is kind of a monster yes um yeah she's passive aggressive she's undermining she bullies jen um and she really seemed like the extreme version of the horrible of a horrible boss um can you talk a little bit about
1: what you were drawing on, if anything, for Karina? Yeah, of course. Um, I think I I wanted to, and I you know we should add the caveat that having a like a relatively nice white collar job in New York City in 2009 would be for a lot of people a very privileged position, and I, I don't want to lose sight of that as we have this conversation. So you know with that framework in place, um, yeah, I wanted to create a really. Bad boss, and a bad boss who would, whose behavior and whose actions would underscore. Um, the protagonist's sense of of privacy and her own sense of physical failings. Jen is um, trying to get pregnant. She's struggling with infertility. And she's working in a place that is obsessed with quote-unquote authenticity and obsessed with being honest and being open and just let it all hang out. And um, I think if you work in a really healthy environment with healthy human beings, that can be fine as long as it's not coerced. But in this environment, it's coerced. And Mm -hmm. it's coerced most um, um, blatantly in Karina, who is her boss, who wants to know why were you 12 minutes late to work today? You obviously had a doctor's appointment. Why don't you tell me about that? There, there's a lot of that kind of, what are you hiding from me going on in this environment? Because the the people in this foundation mistake secrecy and shame for a sense of privacy. Um, and I think in a larger sense there are just a lot of workplaces that And I'm extremely fortunate that I do not work in one of them, I work in the opposite of one where um, it's not respected that people have bodies and minds and lives outside of the office. And, And this whole love what you do, do what you love thing I think can be really toxic where you're you're supposed to give all of yourself to your work and your colleagues I don't think that you should be obligated to do that even though that's kind of a feeling that's um, really taken way too much hold I think in the culture so I think that was what I was trying to bring to an extreme in Karina
0: and why did you make the
1: entire workplace female I mean I think part of it was just prescriptive like there's a lot of decisions that I mean you know this you just finished a really awesome sounding novel like there's all these decisions that you have to make and the best decisions that you can make just kind of like whittle away other decisions and so making it all one thing making it homogenous in that way was one decision that kind of simplified and clarified things um I was just saying to someone else that um, there, at one point when I was writing the book, I wanted the book to like be this kind of e- extreme manifestation of like the Bechdel test, where there would be <laughs> only, like it would be like the women like Claire Booth Luce's uh, play, where uh, you only saw women, men were only talked about, and. Uh, and that sort of in the writing of the book that conceit which I was so um, wedded to at the beginning it sort of became a gimmick and it wasn't really serving the book um, there were all these scenes between Jen and her husband that I really wanted and I was like how can I have the scene but still have an all female book maybe he could be on the phone and we could hear his voice and not see him It's was like this is stupid <laughs> just like give this up but I think possibly the palimpsest of let's do a book where only women talk and you only see women is is. Maybe still visible there, Um, and maybe one of the ways it's visible is is in the all-female workplace.
0: Um, So you brought up Jen's husband, um, and so let's talk about Jen's husband a little bit. (laughs) Um, So Jen's husband is a a teacher, and he has the summers off, um, and he doesn't really do anything. In the summers, besides go running, it seems. He goes running. Uh, yeah. Um, he reads books. Yeah, and he and Jen don't have a lot of money. They live in Not Dittmiss Park, um, which is where I live, which <laughs> uh, is where Jessica
1: lives. Um,
0: but, it's Flatbush. It's
1: Flatbush, but real estate agents like to call it Dittmiss Park. It's not Dittmiss Park.
0: Um, and so, you know, you've, very early in the book, you see kind of these strands of resentment that Jen has, has towards Jim. Um, Oh, also, sidebar. All the couples have alliteration
1: yes. names. Yeah, it was my homage to girls. No. <laughs> nice. Um, so. It wasn't, actually. I don't know why I said that. <laughs>
0: It had nothing to do with girls. It was not her hom- homage to girls. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, their relationship and, mm-hmm. you know, what what it means for Jen to be married to this guy who it seems like she doesn't really respect.
1: Um, Ooh, really? You think so? Mm, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That's yeah. really interesting. I, I mean, I thought... I'm so excited to be here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. I mean, she had...
1: Well, I don't,
0: I don't want to get too spoilery. No. Oh, we can totally get spoilery. Okay. Um,
1: sorry. I, okay. <laughs> so living in New York City is weird because um, there's a lot of money and you don't know where the money is coming from necessarily. Like all these bills are getting paid. These apartments are being lived in. These, this travel is being taken. But how? Is it a trust fund? Does the person next to you make way more money than you do? And, like, you just haven't figured it out yet? Like, what does their spouse do? Is there an aunt involved? Like, there's this... uh, But you don't talk about it. Like, I'm embarrassed talking about it right now. You're not allowed to talk about it. You're not supposed to, 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 to say any of these things. And so it was interesting to me to... Um, try to talk about it in a book but in the way that people don't talk about it. You talk around it you find synonyms or euphemisms for it and it's all kind of sheepish and embarrassed and like oh my god let's stop talking about this. Um, And that comes to the fore with Jen because you know she has wealthy friends as anyone in New York, well as a lot of people in New York City do and there are all these social um, stratifications between her and her friends um, that weren't necessarily visible in college or in their 20s but once people start getting married and they start buying apartments and they start having children those differences um, those levels of, of status and privilege become very visible in ways that can be jarring if you have chosen to be kind of blind to the fact that they exist at all. Um, and I, I think that once those start becoming visible gyms lack of traditional ambition or his ease with being relaxed and his ease with not commodifying every second of his day and just being himself and being a person in the world go from being attributes and assets and things that helped Jen fall in love with him to being why aren't you doing anything like why aren't you making more money like why aren't you being like other people who I didn't marry um and I don't think that that translates as lack of respect, <laughs> so it's heartbreaking and fascinating to me that you think that. But, like, but that's the thing. I mean, I wanted I really, really, really wanted to write a book that had lots of blank space in it, and you could decide you know, what your judgments of these people were, and whether or not all the endings were happy, and whether or not people really loved and respected each other. So I'm, I am genuinely happy and sad to hear that. <laughs> um. You have this great
0: passage um, about how everything leading up to that point where um, it becomes clear that certain people are wealthier than others
1: is like summer camp. Yeah, should we read that yeah, part? Yeah, okay. let's read that part. <laughs> One moment. Find it. Um, it's going to take me a minute to find it. So the thing about Jim... Yeah. Not um,
0: you know, I just... I. So Jen is just not. She feels. And Jessica, if you feel that this mis- that this interpretation is totally off, please no, no, to no, say so. Right. But she feels stuck um, in a lot of ways. And to me, her relationship with Jim was just like another manifestation of her feeling stuck um, and feeling frustrated and powerless um, that Jim was not doing what she kind of passive aggressively wanted him to do because she doesn't really articulate it until. The end, pretty mm-hmm.
1: much. Um, yeah, she that, has all
0: this like burning rage inside of her. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think a, I think a lot of the book is about people who are unable or unwilling to communicate with each other, which is a really toxic thing in a workplace. It's a to- I mean, like I'm stating the obvious. It's a toxic thing in a relationship and a friendship. Um, but I also think, like you know. I- I I wanted people to want to wring her neck sometimes. Like, I wanted Jen to feel like a friend. You know, I wanted her to feel like someone you really knew, who you really loved and cared about, and, you know, wanted to be with as a friend for the rest of your life, but who you just couldn't, like, couldn't understand sometimes why she was behaving the way that she did, and you you would want to wring her neck sometimes, and you would feel like Jim sometimes Mm -hmm. around her. Um, You know, she's not necessarily an easy person to be with and part of that ironically is because she tries so fucking hard to be an easy person. Yeah. And she that, doesn't want to be a burden. She doesn't want to be a burden. She's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry to put you out. Like she's just like that all the time. And I I have those those trappings within myself too. She's always thanking people. She's always apologizing, apologizing. for herself. Yeah. And um all of that deflection and all of that um Keeping silent, I think, builds up and builds up and then it explodes. Yeah um, Let me just find the summer camp part. Um, let's see. Should I start at the self-pity? Yeah, part okay. Um, this is right after Jen finds out that one of her friends is secretly rich. <laughs> As one does. Yeah. I mean, this has to- totally happened. Um, Jen sat down on one of the empty benches in the empty courtyard. On her collar, she could almost smell the sour breath of her own self-pity. Her self-pity subsisted in part on simple carbohydrates and on the salt mined from the sodium-rich instant soups of a drafty childhood. But it was mostly self-sustaining, feeding on itself, and apparently inescapable genetic susceptibility to self-pity being one of the major reasons Jen pitied herself. She closed her eyes against the yellowish orbital streaks ringing around her head and submitted to self-pity's embrace, tilting her face toward the slanting winter sun, inhaling and exhaling. She and her self-pity knew now as the pleasant people gathered in a secret room must have known all along that early adulthood for most of her college peers was a kind of summer camp, a character building exercise in make-believe, a hope chest of nostalgia, a lakeside idol that marked the shimmering threshold before real life began. The cramped subsidized housing where Meg and Mark, her friends, had lived for nearly two years during law school throwing monthly four course dinner parties at which half the guests ate in the tiny kitchen and the other half eight in the tiny bedroom rotating guest by guest at regular intervals to hybridize conversation and interaction that was summer camp When Lauren Riley, daughter of another partner at Meg's father's law firm, moved into her boyfriend's one-window studio to paper over the year between when she finished law school and her boyfriend started medical school, that was summer camp. Pam and Paulo's mildewy, transient-spilled studio space was summer camp. Meg's semi-annual clothing swaps were summer camp. Pam's champion sweatshirts were summer camp. And it goes on like that for a little while maybe too long Um, meeting your best friends in college was dangerous if only because college was the great leveler everyone in college lives like a college student nobody necessarily knows who's on financial aid and who's not and how much nobody would ever ask such things the stratifications are hidden so well as to be forgotten marriage and childbearing and the ceremonies attendant upon them also commemorated the reemergence of those stratifications for those who'd ignored or discounted them <laughs> so i the 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 moment I knew that i that I had the, like the right agent like I'd already signed with my agent, but the the moment I was like yeah was i was de- just telling my friend on this this morning was um we were meeting with an editor and um my agent Claudia Ballard said, you know, reading this book sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. And she like made this flinching motion. And I was just like, Yes, I really wanted that. Um, for better or worse.
0: Um, so I think we're gonna take some questions actually from the audience if there are any. Hi, yes,
1: I'm visiting from Brooklyn. I <laughs> live in New York. What is to be done about this stratification? What do you do when you realize that your friend has an apartment because their parents put the down payment down for them? There's nothing you can do. <laughs> you write <read> a novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and it's I mean like it, there's 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 nothing to be done about it. And it's, and it's not that big of a deal it's like not, you know, like as problems go in the world, it's like one billion or something um, but it's, you know, it's a weird feeling you, you know, you feel caught out by it you feel like you've been walking through your life blind or something and, and yeah but now there's nothing you can do, sorry
0: <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, of course
1: So the writing process um, how did you you know you get into this character you get into this angst this frustration this pain this despair this feeling of being stuck you might spend days hours minutes there what did you do to ground yourself to this I mean how long would you, when you stayed there when you realized how did, what did you do to keep yourself from staying there too long and get back into the um No, it's it's a totally fair question. I I never internalized any of it. It was just like a set of problems to be solved. Like once I had figured out what the book was, it was just like, how do I get from A to B to C to D? Um, I also wrote the book really quickly. So I think that helped a lot too. I had a a deadline in mind and I just wrote that deadline. Um, so it was it was sort of a workmanlike way of going about it, but it I think it also left me less room for angst or something. I don't know. How did you write Startup?
0: Um, I I mean I, I physically wrote it in the morning mm-hmm. and on the weekends um, mostly, mm-hmm. and then I took two months off mm-hmm. and finished most of it, um, but I didn't. Yeah, that, I mean, that was that was pretty much how yeah. I wrote it. Um, I don't think I wrote it as fast as, as you. It sounds like you wrote yours pretty fast, but... Um,
1: I mean, I know people who literally, like, they set a timer in the morning, 60 minutes. They wake up, you know, before they go to work or before the kids are up or whatever, and they just write for... I could never do that. Um, I need, like, big blocks of time mm-hmm. to work and, like, circle around something and procrastinate a little bit before I get into it. Um, but that level of discipline that kind of like six to seven done is extremely appealing to me and I would like to access it at some point (laughs) it sounds like you might have um
0: well I did I did do that Um, for a few months Mm -hmm. and then so it was interesting when I actually had time off work to have these big blocks of time where I could let myself sort of procrastinate and think more big picture about my book Mm -hmm. but we're
1: not talking about my book right now we're talking
0: about your book Um, so
1: yeah I hope that answers your question (laughs) (laughs) hi Rishi (laughs) Um,
0: so that pragmatic way of of writing of just like having problems to solve for the um, do you think that came out of it
1: writing your your non fiction writing? I definitely think it did. And I, I don't and I don't think it's a coincidence that I started writing this book right around the time I started working for Slate um which is an online magazine and there's just there's just no margin for messing around like you have to sit down and write and like your writers have to sit down and write and you have to edit them and you have to like get that stuff online immediately and there's like there's just no space for um like You just have to get it down and not worry about it being perfect and the thing is if you get down and not worry about it being perfect it's going to be 95% there anyway and sometimes if you torture yourself about it, making it perfect it makes it worse so I think that gave me like a freedom that I wouldn't have had otherwise and I think by the same token I think I had never written fiction before I was in my mid-30s before I started writing fiction and it never occurred to me to write fiction before and um, something about finding a total totally new way of writing really rejuvenated writing nonfiction for me too. Like it just made everything more exciting. It's like, Oh, there's this whole other, I don't know if you had the same yeah, experience. No,
0: definitely. And I think also have coming also from an online media background, yeah. you do learn that, um, what's that thing that that people say? Like,
1: Done is better than perfect, or something like that. <laughs> Done is better than perfect. Don't. <laughs> Jim Pana. I used to. I used to be colleagues with Jim Pana was like the New York Times TV critic, and he would always say, um, "Don't let, don't let perfect be the enemy of good." Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Or something which is like, yeah, yeah. So you you become. I think you become less precious about your writing, um, which. I think is really important and um, kind of getting over that psychological hump of being inhibited is really important and just producing and then thinking as long as I have something I can go back to it Um, but you need to have that something.
1: That reminds me, actually, the best writing advice I've ever heard was someone help me pronounce his name, Zizek, Slavoj Zizek. Did I get that right? Okay. Um, there's a documentary about him, and he says, someone asks him about his writing process, and he says, I don't write. I take notes, and then I edit the notes, and I just skip the writing altogether, and that really stayed with me, and whenever I'm stuck, I just I think about that. And I've like never read his writings and don't really know how to pronounce his name, but um, I'm grateful to him for that. Yeah, I think if you're if you're feeling stuck, the best thing to do is just start writing anything, mm-hmm. um, just blather and nonsense, yeah. and and yeah, the, just having something to go back to, however horrible it is, yeah. is reassuring. Yeah, yeah.
0: and work for a blog for, like, six months, and
1: then <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll be like,
0: oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, other questions? I have a question. So the book is so satirical, and it's funny, and there's this sort of ridiculous workplace that the heroine is kind of mired within, but then at the same time, there's the story of the heroine's um, fertility, journey which is really very sad and very frustrating and I just wondered how you kind of managed to get those tones like it seems like things could that that's a it's a very hard balance to strike and I wondered if that was something that was on your mind as you were writing to sort of go between the really comic pieces and then also you know after the thing that happens um how to sort of bring the reader back from that
1: yeah um the I'll we're among friends here I will spoil the exact center the the, the exact, exact, exact center of the book is that um, the protagonist Jen has a miscarriage and uh, desperately wanted um, pregnancy and uh, it's fairly she's fairly progressed in the pregnancy it's not an early miscarriage per se and uh, I was aware that it was a mostly comic book but like this thing had to happen it was one of the first scenes in the book I I wrote actually like I wrote the end first and I wrote the beginning and then like there were a few scenes where I was like okay I have to like get this down because this is like one of the milestones in the book and that was one of them Um, and I guess what I was worried about that like I was worried I mean that scene I think if I remember correctly goes directly into some ridiculous office situation right and and I was worried about it being jarring but I also think that this is a really cheesy thing to say but I isn't life just like that like something awful happens and then something stupid happens and you laugh about it and like not that fiction is a documentary or it should like be some kind of verite representation of real life but I I didn't mind that as something real lifey that I could try to capture in the book Um, I make the mistake of reading my Goodreads reviews which no one should ever do and people have commented on that it's just like you know how do you go from like these funny scenes to to that but um I, I don't know I mean that's just I, I don't know I'm not not—I'm not giving you a very articulate answer I was worried about it but I didn't know what to do about it so I just did it does that make sense yeah uh, it works I mean it doesn't feel like
0: you just completely fear it all in terms of tone of it. somehow you maintain that balance
1: I mean I guess one thing about it is that um, they never talk about it like the word miscarriage is not Anywhere in the book. And in fact I was just talking to someone who asked me, like, what's the thing that happens in the middle of the book? Like, what is that? And I'm like, She's a miscarriage. Like, oh it's called um, they call it the thing the that The thing happens. that happens. Um and um You know, the the book is about someone who can't express herself, who's afraid of expressing herself, who's sheepish about expressing herself. And she can't even come up with language to talk. You know, she has a whole set of euphemisms about fertility, she has a whole set of euphemisms about people she works with, she has a whole, like, employee lingo that she has with her best friend at work, Daisy. Um, That she can't even bring herself to say this, um, I think, is a window into her psyche that might be useful and instructive but I also think like in a, in a larger sense that it's just um, it's part of this whole taboo that we have around miscarriage and people just don't miscarriages happen all the time women have miscarriages all the time I've had a miscarriage no one ever talks about it um, and I guess this was a way of talking about it but not or like talking about it in the way that we talk about it which is to talk around it or ignore it um
0: yeah, the Karina's reaction to it uh, was like a, a very painful. I found that to be a very painful scene because she seems, she seems sort of sympathetic, but you're also like, what is this in service of? And you're like, oh, it's in service of getting her to come back to work
1: like, yeah. the next day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, and um, you know, I I know from. Um, you know, there was a there was a dear Prudence letter that I read. It didn't inspire the book, but I I, I read it um, very early on in in writing the book. That. Um, totally broke my heart but also kind of steadied me and then like, you know, this stuff happens all the time. It was This was when Emily offie was still Dear Prudence and uh, this woman um, had written in to say, you know, I had a miscarriage and my boss has been so awful about it. My boss's wife is now pregnant and they're always talking to me about how we're not going to make the same mistakes you did and we're not going to lose this pregnancy and it was just like awful and unbelievable and um, Emily's, you know, advice to her was wise and true but she said, you know, just just as a reminder... Never, ever, ever tell anyone you're pregnant until you absolutely have to to avoid these sorts of situations. And the woman followed up and she said, I didn't tell anyone I was pregnant. They figured it out because I was sick all the time and I was missing work for doctor's appointments. Um, Which kind of, I think, underscored a flaw in Emily's argument, which kind of like reinforces the taboo around early pregnancy and miscarriage. Like, oh, just don't talk about it. I was like, well, why not? You know, like, why can't you make that decision for for yourself? But it also, not you know that's not a diss on Emily Emily was a great dear prudence but um uh I I think that it it reminded me that this stuff happens and that a lot of bosses don't know how to deal with people having bodies that sometimes you know betray them they they don't know how to deal with people having lives outside the office except as a function of Okay, great when are you coming back to work um, so I, I just kept that in mind like whenever I wanted to soften it a little bit like oh is this too unrealistic I, I just tried to remember that letter <laughs> let's please not end on this note I hope yeah. someone else has a question <laughs> please really another not. question <laughs> Sam, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I, my favorite part of the book, one of my favorite parts of the book, was the way that you write specifically about um, with the, the two women who are her closest friends mm-hmm. and about sort of the dynamics and complexities of, like, multi-person friendships. You know, where, like, uh, the observation particularly that, um, like, in, in sort of a group of friends, everyone thinks they're the odd one out. You know, they see this the commonalities between everyone else and they're like, well, everyone else is, like, the artist and I'm the weirdo. Or, like, everyone, yeah. the, you know... Anyway, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those friendships and how you thought about them in the writing uh, and, and why two friends you know I think um, so Jen, Pam and Meg are the, the, the best friends um, at the at the center of the book, and they're very different people, and um, I kind of wanted it to seem a little weird that they were friends, because I, I have friendships like that, where I'm just like, wait, why are we friends? This is awesome, but like, I can't remember why we're friends, you know, like, I love that so much, um, so there was a little bit of, of, of that spirit that I wanted in it. Um, to be honest with you, the, the, you know, aside from that resonance with my own life, those Relationships were the hardest ones to write in the book for me because I did not want to be accountable to any of my friends for using our friendships as fodder or, you know, using... Like, it might have snuck in, like, subliminally without me realizing it, but I really, really didn't want to be using any of my friendships as material. And so I wanted to create three people whose relations to each other were, you know, really and truly made up. Um and that was those were the relationships and the scenes that I had the most anxiety about um you know I wanted them to be uh, I wanted them to love each other to pieces and for us to realize how close they were in college and how hard they were fighting at times to stay as close as they were in college as their lives diverged as you know their statuses in life diverged um I I wanted you to feel feel as flawed I think as two of them in particular are I think one of them's like a better person than the other two but I won't say which Um, (laughs) um, I I wanted you to love them and I wanted you to root for them to stay friends Um, and I guess that's what guided me I don't know if I'm answering your question adequately
0: (laughs) what do you think Jen's doing right now
1: um, oh my goodness. Uh, God, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think Jen is doing right now? <laughs>
0: I mean, I think she's made a lot of money from her portraits. Okay. I think, yeah. I think this is going really well for her. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like she, so glad. Like to she hear has that. a whole thing, and she's like Instagram famous, and
1: yeah. I do. I think she's she has a moderate level of Instagram fame. Yeah, yes. For sure. Yeah. I'm I'm down with that. Um, well, I think that's a good note to end on.
0: Okay. Um, so thank you all so Thanks much everybody. for coming.
1: You've been listening to the Skylight Books Author Reading Series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.